0: Well, good evening. My name is Nick Cauldry. I'm the head of LSE's Department of Media and Communications. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you this evening to our spring public lecture with the distinguished expert on citizens and community media, Professor Clemencia Rodriguez. Clemencia will talk for around 45 minutes. And then following directly after her lecture, we'll have a response from Dr. Shakuntala Banerjee, who is Associate Professor of Media and Communications at LSE and Director of our MSc in Media Communication and Development, and herself a leading expert in media's relations to citizenship. We then should have around 25 minutes for questions and discussion. But before I hand over to Clemencia's presentation, let me first say a little bit to introduce her in some detail. Clemencia Rodriguez is a full professor in the Departments of Media Studies and Production and Media and Communication at Temple University, Philadelphia, USA. And before that, she was full professor in the Department of Communication at University of Oklahoma. Clemencia grew up in Bogota, Colombia, and after completing her first degree there, she did her Master's and her Ph.D. in International Telecommunications at Ohio University, And since then, and in fact, she was telling me on Friday already from her days as an undergraduate, her work has had an unwavering focus and commitment to understanding the difference that media can make in people's lives, not just as something they consume, but as something they make. She insists always on seeing media as a process through which people can genuinely transform their lives and challenge the ways in which so often they are excluded from the stories told about their communities, territories, and nations. And in the era of digital media, when we are told by some writers, such as uh, Jeffrey Rosen, that the audience no longer exists because everyone is now a producer of media, or as Clay Shirky puts it, here comes everybody, in this era, Clemencia's focus on non-media professionals making media might seem unremarkable but to think that would be to ignore two things first the complete neglect of community media that offers some form of alternative to mainstream mass media that was completely normal in media and communications research until at least the middle of the last decade and second it would ignore that when Clemency refers in her work to the transformative consequences that participating in media can have for people, she doesn't mean a click or a brief interaction with an interface online. She means a much fuller cultural and social process that deserves the term that she proposed in her first book from 2001, Fissures in the Mediascape, and that term is citizens' media. What are the ways, that book asks, that by making media, people can enhance their role as citizens of their territory? And what forces normally make citizens' media difficult or even impossible? In her second book from 2011, Citizens' Media Against Armed Conflict, Clemencia addresses the consequences of brutal military force and violence, and under such circumstances, the role that media can still play in citizen survival, drawing on intense field work in Colombia during its long civil war. And her latest work from which tonight's talk will build extends that investigation. So Clemencia's fieldwork has taken her to Colombia, Spain, Chile, and many other places. She founded the Our Media Network of Theorists and Practitioners in two thousand and one, which will hold its next meeting in Colombia this July. We first met in Mexico in two thousand. And throughout the time we've known each other, she has played an unwavering and leading role in raising the publications and the wider profile of work on citizens and community media in investigating new practices and new sites of discovery. Her title tonight is Media, War and Peacebuilding. Please welcome Clemencia Rodriguez.
1: Well, first of all, thank you, Nick, for a wonderful introduction. He is the co-founder of of the Our Media Network. Um, So we're been partners in crime for a long time. And thank you for making it possible for me to be here today and share this with you. Um, I'm going to show you some slides if uh, this works. Let's see. Okay. Since 2004, I have been conducting research in areas of armed conflict in Colombia, my native country. The focus of my research is the use of media technologies and digital platforms in contexts where unarmed civilians uh, live in the crossfire between armed groups, including guerrilla groups, paramilitaries, right-wing paramilitaries, the Colombian security forces, and drug mafias. I spent many months in regions devastated by armed conflict, exploring the complex roles of citizens media. Although Colombia is now turning a page with the peace agreement recently signed between the FARC guerrilla and the Colombian government, conflict and violence are far from over. Colombians conflict began in 1954, and we must not forget that enduring more than 50 years of war has the effect of eroding the social fabric of a community in deep and profound ways. I am not going to go into the reasons for Colombians armed conflict uh, right here in the talk, but if you're interested, we can talk about it during the Q&A. For now, let me just say that in Colombia, a country with one of the highest Gini index values in the world, inequality and land tenure issues are at the centers of every, uh, at the center of every instance of armed conflict. First, some basic facts about the war, so that we're all on the same page. Even though media representations may give you the impression that Colombia's war involves a great majority of the population, this is far from true. If we add up all the members of all the armed, armed groups, all the guerrilla groups, paramilitary militias, army, police, and drug mafias, we get a total of approximately 300,000 active combatants. In a country of 47 million people, this represents 0.6%, less than 1% of the country's total population. However, the damage uh, that this 0.6% has inflicted on the country is vast and profound. Between 1958 and 2012, 220,000 people have lost their lives. 81% of, these, um, of the victims were unarmed civilians and only 18.5% were combatants in any of the legal or illegal armed groups. These figures don't account for other forms of victimization including 25,000 people who have disappeared, more than 6,000 boys and girls forcefully recruited by different armed groups, and more than 4 million people displaced from their land. The evidence demonstrates that right-wing paramilitaries disproportionately targeted the civilian population. For example, out of 1,900 massacres perpetrated between 1980 and 2012, almost 60 percent were at the hands of the paramilitaries. The guerrillas are to blame for 17.3 percent of the massacres and the army is responsible for almost 8 percent. As we can see, this war was waged by a minority of armed Colombians, but the majority of the victims were unarmed civilians. Why is there a popular impression that Colombia and Colombians are all about weapons and war? The reason is that war sucks all the oxygen out of the room. Relying on the journalistic axiom, if it bleeds, it leads, national and international media have continuously focused their attention on war at the expense of anything else that may be happening in the country. War and men with guns tend to be disproportionately represented, covered by the media and analyzed by researchers. This focus on violence ignores one of the most important lessons I learned during my field work in Colombia. Even in the most most violent contexts, war is, is rarely able to take over all aspects of everyday life in the community. There are always social and cultural spaces that escape the colonization by war usually sustained by ordinary men and women who refuse to yield to the encroachment of violence. In the presence of the fear and uncertainty of war that war brings, people continue living and interacting, children play or go to school, Uh, families and neighbors gather, business owners deal, teenagers flirt. These pockets of sociality not colonized by war are important because, because they contain the seeds of agency and empowerment. It is here, in these sometimes frailed threads of social fabric, that a community can feel kernels of hope, solidarity, and peaceful coexistence. And yet, the media and other social institutions, including us as researchers, academics, and NGOs, continuously neglect and overlook these instances of peace. As researchers, we need to critically examine our own research agendas and ask ourselves, are we allowing violence to dominate our, the, our attention? Years of these media narratives of war and violence accumulate, creating a sense of these places as inherently violent, inhabited by savage communities. This portrayal effectively suffocates any alternative images of place and people that might might emerge. While mainstream media, both Colombian and international, maintain these narratives, Colombian community media have learned to shift their attention to those who never took up arms, or as they say in Colombia, los desarmados, the unarmed ones. Only media able to shift the focus away from the pool of war will be able to discover that violence coexists with social spaces where peace is still alive. One of the ways in which Colombian citizens' media disrupt stigmatizing media narratives is through media production training strategies designed to disrupt war-centered narratives of self and place. For example... Pasolinian Medellín uses participatory filmmaking and visual ethnography to immerse people in processes that destabilize mainstream media narratives. And I want you to look at the logo of Pasolinian Medellín, which is a gun that has been turned into a viewfinder. And so there's there's all kinds of reasons behind that. During the 1980s and 1990s, Medellin's marginalized neighborhoods became the battleground of drug lords, paramilitary groups, leftist guerrillas, and territorial gangs. These neighborhoods, known as comunas, are some of the most stigmatized places on earth. This image appears on the first page page of a Google search when I search for the terms Medellin and youth. More recently, mainstream narratives such as narcos reify the notion that comunas are places where everyone is armed and only war and violence exist. It is in these same comunas that Pasolini and Medellin opened its doors to community members, offering a media training process specifically designed to invite them to resignify the world around them. Participants are asked to keep field diaries that make the familiar strange. The following comes from one of those um, journals. Sounds of my neighborhood, brushing, sneezing, blender, chickens, cough, phlegm, the screaming cooking pot, washing clothes, snoring, dishes, pigs, cries, bikes, the metro, urination, iron, sex, groans, the creek, bathing, Dead and it's mourning, flush the toilet, football, belching, babies, weekends, yawning. Inspired by Italian filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini's notion of the need to, as he said, poetize reality in the slopes of Rome, Pasolini and Medellin's media production workshops also include tasting, listening, viewing, feeling, mapping, and walking exercises. The last thing that people do is take a camera. The experience of looking through the cardboard frame makes a strong impression on participating youth. Um, one of them says, quote, the exercises with the cardboard frame, oof, that really changed my life. We look through the cardboard frame at our church. Our block, or my dog, which is the main character in all our stories, Pasoline and Medellin is a created lab intended to resignify life through the poetic appropriation of reality. Their media pedagogy is centered on these principles, revisiting life experiences, rediscovering the stories hidden in everyday life, recalibrating the senses, reframing social reality recognizing one's own voice and the voice of others, rewriting life stories collectively, re-signifying one's role in the social context. Pasolini in Medellin believes that media making should allow people to re-signify themselves, their reality and their experience. In Medellin's neighborhoods where war has imposed meanings and cultural codes on daily life, citizens media are used to shift the gaze and look elsewhere towards those social and cultural spaces where peace still exists in the midst of violence. The leaders of Pasolini in Medellin describe themselves as vultures, quote, flying on the periphery of what has been said, looking for stereotypes and established signifiers as carrion. The second point I'd like to make today is that almost no one understands what war feels like. Those who have the privilege of living far away from war do not understand it. But even those of us who have the experience of being in the crossfire fail to comprehend it. As war invades our social spaces and little by little colonizes our everyday lives, we lose track of how it impacts our worldviews, and our social fabric. I speak from personal experience. I was in Colombia during some of the worst times in the war between the Medellin cartel, the FARC guerrilla, and the Colombian security forces. We experienced bombings right in the streets of Bogota and Medellin, and massacres of peasants and union leaders in different regions of the country. We saw thousands of displaced families and communities flocking to our cities to escape the violence in the countryside, even though our cities were not faring much better. And of course, each one of these experiences took its toll, seeping into our psyches and our social fabric, even though we did not realize it at the time. We did not realize how the militarization of everyday life was transforming our society. Coexisting with weapons and military personnel armed to the teeth in our streets and our neighborhoods eroded our social fabric. Little by little, we normalized the presence of guns, uniforms, and tanks in our everyday lives. We normalized abusive hierarchies and the notion that inflicting fear on those around us is an effective way to get things done, or even worse, to maintain our rights. Fear and violence replaced the rule of law. Weapons and deterrence became efficient strategies of social regulation. Month by month, as our levels of mistrust multiplied, we learned to lower our voices. We got used to whispering in public social spaces like restaurants and bars. As our sense of vulnerability and powerlessness increased, we turned to joking and sarcasm as survival mechanism. It has taken me years of thinking and reading about other wars in Northern Ireland, Palestine, Guatemala to understand how having to coexist with armed groups erodes intimate and social aspects in the everyday lives of unarmed civilians. In order to understand how war and armed conflict affect the social fabric of a community, we have to reach out to literatures far away from our familiar fields of media studies and communication theory. I have found a tremendous body of research and analysis in the work of anthropologists of war and violence. While most research on war focuses on military strategy and geopolitical issues of power, some cultural anthropologists have shifted to explore how unarmed civilians experience war. And here the key word is experience. What is the lived experience of war? What happens to people's everyday lives when armed groups invade streets and towns? Here are just a couple examples of how anthropologists have explained the lived experience of war. One of the first casualties of war is people's sense of certainty and control. Unpredictability in daily life and the resulting uncertainty and paralysis are some of the most common elements identified by anthropologists who have studied unarmed communities in war zones. In her study of terror in Spain, Arex demonstrates that while collective fear can be directly triggered by violent actions, It is also triggered by discursive practices, such as gossip, jokes, and rumors. She describes the unpredictable nature of victimization this way. sweeps of neighborhoods occur suddenly, often at night. People are dragged off to police stations and interrogation centers in their night clothes. One house will be hit, another spared. Civilians are virtually prisoners. Awaiting the knock on the door, the siren at the end of the street, whether one is spared or not, is mod, more a matter of luck than on innocence. End of quote. Based on her fieldwork in Guatemalan communities caught between guerrillas and state security forces, Kay Warren concludes She says, Uncertainty and anxiety weigh heavily. There was no way of knowing. If one might become a target of surveillance, when one might be singled out for detention and torture, or what may be considered evidence of subversive or collaborationist intentions, one would not know what would trigger the wrath of the police, whether guerrillas were moving from strategies of recruitment to punitive actions, whether one's name may be on a list or which list it may be on, or whether a trip to the fields or the market would result in being caught in someone's sweep, end of quote. Some of the uh, uh, impact of war is obvious, taking the form of visible injury and destruction, but less visible effects can be even more demonstrated and last longer. Carolyn Nostrom coined the term "mame culture to describe the demolition of routines of daily life, the undermining of socially constructed life worlds and the dismantling of essential knowledge frameworks and social institutions. Based on years of research in Northern Ireland, Alan Feldman talks about the massive importation of uh, surveillance technologies into the lives of unarmed civilians. In the wake of this surveillance, That which is normally inside moves outside and that which is outside moves inside. Feldman describes a time in Northern Ireland when political activism had to recede to the most intimate spheres of trust, moving politics from uh, public to the private sphere. At the same time, surveillance became so insidious in people's private spheres that, that they were permanently exposed to the foreign gaze of security forces. In reference to video cameras mounted on the street corners, a Belfast resident says, quote, they know the patterns of your wallpaper and the color of your underwear, End of quote. When public spaces are permeated by suspicions, surveillance, and threats, people desert them and retreat to the private spaces. As a result, social bonds and a sense of collective identity erode and thriving communities are reduced to a set of isolated individuals coexisting in the same space. As I said before, many community media in Colombia have been able to shift their perspective from the uh, armed ones to the unarmed ones, allowing them to reveal the ways that war brings isolation, erodes public spheres, and destroys the rule of law. But what is more interesting are the ways in which these community communicators use media technologies to counter the, that effect. The bulk of my field work was spent learning about these particular uses of citizens media. For example, to counter the erosion of, of local public spheres, Radio Andaqui, a community radio uh, station in southern Colombia, designed a Christmas decorating contest. A couple years before, the, re- uh, the region had experienced unprecedented violence between the FAR guerrilla and the army. And despite the fact that the war was waning, people were still afraid to circulate in public spaces. They were hiding or in retreat in the private sphere. The radio station, created the rules for the contest specifying that it was open to the collective efforts of neighborhood blocks but not individual households. You had to be a block to enter the contest. I'd like to call attention to how the contest functioned as a communication intervention designed to encourage neighbors to talk and interact. Soon Doors were left open and people could come and go between one home and another, fetching tools or a can of paint. The radio station then used its radio cycle, a mobile unit mounted on a tandem bicycle to to transmit from a different block every night. So, for example, one night they described that 13th Street had made Christmas lights using egg cartons. Little by little, people from all over town came strolling by 13th Street to see the lights. Neighbors talked to each other, commented and walked around. Radio and Key knew that each of these conversations was a thread in the social fabric that could sustain the community. On December 23rd, Radio and Key announced the winner, and the prize was all the necessary supplies to throw a block party and invite everyone in town. Even the prize was designed to trigger and cultivate communication and interaction, not between the medium and its audience, but away from the medium, among members of the community. Another casualty of armed conflict, according to anthropologists of war, is the rule of law. In regions where armed groups have a strong presence, violence and corruption continuously threaten governability and the rule of law. In these places, there's a constant push and pull, a tension between violence on the one hand and the rule of law on the other. In Colombia, guerrillas and paramilitaries threaten local governments and the democratic process. Authoritarian logics of fear and weapons Threaten to replace democratic participation and the notion of rights and responsibilities. Throughout my fieldwork, I found a variety of strategies developed by community radio stations to support the rule of law and um, uh, local processes of good governance and transparency the first thing that stations did was to opt out of paid political advertising which is permitted under the Colombian legislation governing community broadcasting this allowed the station to cover municipal elections with autonomy, give equal time to all candidates and ask candidates hard questions on the air are found instances in which the local community radio station monitored local elections transmitted town hall meetings live, and open discussions uh, between local residents and their local government authorities. Puerto Wilches Studio, a community radio station in a region devastated by the war, was so adamant about the need for transparency and accountability that they called on the mayor to publicly explain the municipal budget every six months. The most powerful theoretical tools for understanding communication and media in context of war may be found in fields that seem distant from communication theory. In my case, I ended up using performance theory to make sense of certain types of media uses in context of war. Performative communication, it's a very unique type of communication act that engages all the senses of participants, allowing them to embody and feel the message. Performative communication submerges participants in a holistic experience that engages all the senses. Performative communication acts are all about the constitutive potential of language over reality. Performance is language that has the power to make things happen. I relied especially on Victor Turner's work on liminality and Rachel Rachel Turner's work on the collective experience she termed communas. Turner theorized liminality as a moment triggered by performance when social conventions are suspended, opening a possibility of new alternatives. He refers to, quote, a realm of pure possibility, a temporary breach of structure, whereby the familiar may be stripped of certitude, and the normative unhinged, an interlude wherein conventional social, economic, and political life may be transcended. Puerto which is a stereo that community radio located in a municipality heavily impacted by the war It's an example of a community that has experienced the normalization of violence and aggression that happens after decades of coexisting with armed groups. The rule of law eroded. People turned to violence, weapons, and threats of harm to solve everyday life conflicts. Violence had become the new normal. As a case in point, a local conflict over vendors in the Central Park threatened to spiral into violence. Street vendors had invaded the park with their merchandise. On the other side, residents felt that their park was being taken over, preventing them from using this public space. The conflict escalated. From Stadis Calibas, we have learned how, in regions where armed groups coexist with civilians, this type of intercommunity conflict can easily get tangled with armed groups and escalate into full-blown armed conflict. When the local community radio station decided to intervene, instead of transmitting messages about nonviolent conflict resolution in the community, the station actually triggered a process of nonviolent conflict resolution. The station provided a forum for vendors who publicly explained that putting food on the family's table depended on being able to use the park as a public market. Next, the the station opened the microphones to the residents who explained that the park was an important space for collective interaction. And not being able to use it was having a negative impact on the community. During the process, the station invited listeners to call in with questions, suggestions, comments, one listener suggested using an abandoned building as the market, and some callers began asking the mayor to step in. Others volunteered to help refurbish the old building. Finally, in response to local pressure, the mayor stated that he would buy the abandoned building and make it available for the park vendors. The vendors moved to the new ma- market, and the park returned to its original use. The station facilitated the peaceful resolution of the conflict but not by sending messages describing nonviolence or trying to persuade people to live nonviolently instead these community radio producers trigger a communication process in which people were able to experience what nonviolence conflict resolution feels like the medium subjected people to the lived experience of nonviolent conflict resolution. So it's a case of performative communication. In a context where aggression and violence had become the expectation, the radio station opened a space of liminality in which the normative was unhinged and new alternatives of ways of being, interacting, and solving conflict could be experienced. In another case of performative communication, A community radio engaged the entire community in a collective rescue mission. A guerrilla organization kidnapped Jose Botello, a local teacher who was also the director of the radio station. The station's producers decided on the spot to make the kidnapping a public event, not just something that happened to Botello's family and friends. After all, they reasoned The technology necessary to make the kidnapping a collective concern was at their fingertips. In a matter of minutes, they redirected the station's broadcasting to announce Botello's kidnapping. The community responded by expressing their willingness to undertake any necessary actions to rescue the teacher. Local groups and individuals sent written messages and started calling the station. Every message was read on the air. The kidnappers, the guerrilla organization, called the station in response with a challenge. If it was true that Botello was so cherished in the community, why didn't they all come get him? The station shared these with its listeners. By the end of the day, a caravan of about 500 people coordinated by the radio station snaked up the mountains towards the guerrilla camp. Once at the guerrilla camp, These unarmed Colombians demanded the release of their leader. Three days later, the guerrilla commandantes realized that the civilians would not leave their camp unless Botello was released. They decided that losing Botello was better than dealing with 500 men and women camping on their central square, cooking on improvised bonfires and sleeping in tents. Seven days after Botello was kidnapped, the caravan came back to the town exhausted but reunited with their leader. Step-by-step local communicators use radio technologies to generate a chain of collective actions. Each communication process activated by the radio station is more in line with the notion of performance than with communication as transmission of information or persuasion. The station was used to subject people to what collective agency feels like rather than to transmit a message about it. To this day the people of Santa Rosa harbor a strong appreciation for the radio station. I profoundly agree with anthropologist of war, Carolyn Nordstrom, when she states that getting a mental image of what peace feels like and being reminded that one's world already contains the seeds of peace, is necessary for communities to begin processes of peace building. In other words, imagined peace and embodied peace are needed before it is possible to start working towards sustainable peaceful communities. Performative communication that subjects people to peace is crucial in post-conflict societies. As one of Nordstrom's informants says, quote, So is the war really over? Is the violence of war gone suddenly with declarations of peace? Not really. Peace must be taught just like violence is by subjecting people to it, by showing them peaceful ways to respond to life and living, to daily needs and necessities, to political and personal challenges. On September 26, uh, 2016, last year, the Colombian government and the FARC guerrillas signed a peace agreement that turned the page of the country. After the sectarian populist attempts of the far right to derail the peace process failed, Colombia finally entered the extremely complex phase of post-conflict. The UN is now in Colombia overseeing the disarmament of approximately 10,000 former guerrilla combatants who in the next year or two will return to civilian life and rejoin towns and cities. These are some of the images we're seeing now. This year, 2017, marks the beginning of Colombia's peace process, uh, process of reconciliation and peace building. The Colombian peace process was a massive undertaking. The negotiations, hosted by the Cuban government in Havana, lasted more than four years and involved hundreds of delegates. Um, The process was officially supported by Cuba and Norway, Uh, but many other international entities supported as well, Barack Obama, the Pope, many others. To navigate a peaceful transition into Colombia's post-conflict era, it is crucial to appeal to the field of communication, reconciliation, and peace building, and the work of scholars such as Johan Galton and John Paul Lederach. According to these scholars, sustainable peace requires a series of communication processes that go well beyond signed peace agreements between leaders of armed groups and governments. Such processes require the engagement of all citizens and communities and are centered on communication. Reconciliation and peace building require the transformation of perceptions, attitudes, and opinions about groups that have historically been seen as the enemy. In contexts where stigmatization, polarization, and sectarian discourses have been normalized by years of conflict, it is vital to shift the frames of reference and the tone and language in public debate. A society that moves from violence to peace will have to find a shared history of the past. The media should play a key role in facilitating these processes. Tension and polarization in post-conflict societies do not come to an end with a peace agreement. In post-conflict times, antagonism may be as intense as during the war, and media have the responsibility to de-escalate such antagonism between adversaries including mediating opposing narratives of the historical causes of conflict and reframing notions of villains and heroes. Communication that cultivates reconciliation encourages people to call individuals by their names instead of using war-imposed identities such as friend of the guerrilla," victim or displaced person. Communication should also be used to rehumanize the enemy. In 2015, I collaborated with two Colombian colleagues on a research study that explored the role of social media in the Colombian peace process. The most interest, interesting part, element of this study was taking all this literature on communication, reconciliation, and peace building and operationalizing it into lean items to use in a content analysis of Twitter. In 2015, the peace process was still going through moments of extreme vulnerability in which we did not know if it would succeed or if the polarization and sectarian ideologies would take over and push the push the country deeper into violence. The goal of our study was to analyze to what extent social media contribute to the peace process. We focused the study on Twitter trying to establish if this digital platform contributed to increasing or decreasing polarization and sectarian positions during a vulnerable, very vulnerable peace process. We capture two weeks of tweets from the Twitter accounts of three public figures who played key roles during the peace process. Former President and current Senator Alvaro Uribe Vélez, Senator uh, Ivan Cepeda, and President Juan Manuel Santos. Our coding, uh, this is some of our uh, coding items. Is Twitter used to interpret concessions made by negotiators as failure or as progress to peace? Is Twitter used to favor interpretations of the peace process as a matter of winners and losers? Or is it used to identify common interests? are hyperboles and exaggerations used to incite extreme interpretations of events, etc. Here's some of our findings and I'm going to show you only the ones of Uribe Vélez for the sake of time. The following graph represents how uh, former president Uribe Vélez used Twitter. While only three percent of his tweets promoted the peace process, 97% engage in exactly what Galtung and Lederach insist post-conflict societies should avoid. 300, he he tweeted 300 times, 98 about the peace process, 95 against the peace process, and three supporting the peace process. How exactly did Uribe Vélez use Twitter to derail the peace process? In this graph, we can see that 64.2 of his tweets emphasized acts of aggression by the guerrilla. 21% of his tweets delegitimized the Santos government as a peace negotiator, and 125 encouraged citizens to reject the negotiation process. When referring to the adversary, in the case of Uribe Veres, the adversary was always the guerrilla, Uribe tweeted 27 times, and in each of those tweets, he engaged in the types of communication strategies Lederach and Galtung warned against, demonizing the enemy, insisting on the enemy as a threat, or, and delegitimizing anyone willing to negotiate with the enemy. Unfortunately, instead of using Twitter to directly address the tweets of Uribe Vélez, President Santos, the main defender of the peace process, used the platform in a very bizarre way. While Uribe Vélez tweeted 300 times during the two-week period studies, Santos only posted 43 tweets, and of these, 17, that is 40%, were quotes from famous figures, such as John F. Kennedy and Progress lies not in enhancing what is, but in advancing towards what will be, by Halid Gibran and many others like that. To conclude, I talked about mainstream media and their, sti- their stigmatizing narratives of war, about community and citizens' media and how they use media technologies to counter the negative impact of war and armed groups in the social fabric and also about the disappointing uses of social media to further polarization and to increase people's isolation. I would like to leave you with three main points. First, as researchers in the area of media and communication, we need to monitor and analyze the very specific roles that different types of media play in context of violence and armed conflict. Second, and for me this is the more important lesson, It is key to shift our attention from those who have arms and weapons and wage war to those who don't. The social and cultural spaces not invaded and eroded by war are crucial for a society to overcome conflict and build peace. These spaces contain the seeds of peace. It is in these spaces that people can think and feel otherwise. If media paid more attention to these social spaces, if researchers spent more time exploring these spaces, people may be reminded that peace does not have to be brought from the outside, that peace exists in their communities, even though it may be marginal and fragile. And third, we need to maintain a healthy dialogue with other fields and disciplines anthropology of war peace building and conflict resolution performance studies and feminist theory among others war and armed conflict transform societies in very complex ways and we need equally complex theoretical tools to understand those transformations to end I want to leave you with a very just one or two minutes of a video recently shot in a central plaza of a town where I did research. And for us, to see this central plaza and the way you're going to see it is extraordinary. Every one of those human interactions was impossible 10 years ago, 9 years ago, when we walked on this same plaza among sandbag barricades, among men with guns, and it was totally deserted. So I'm just going to play a few minutes of these and maybe we can have the light. So this is what peace looks like, thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much, Clemencia, for a fascinating talk. And now, please welcome our respondent, Dr. Shakuntala Banerjee of LSE.
2: Okay. Um, Those of you who know me, and quite a few of my students are here tonight, know that I'm usually looking for a fight when a professor comes from outside to give a lecture. And I'm always looking for things that I can disagree with, because there are plenty of things to disagree with in the world, But I have to say, today, if I was tweeting about this, all I would say was, yes, this! Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! Because uh, Clemencia has just given the talk that I would like to give, and it's the most wonderful talk, and I'm really hugely, hugely impressed. And you will see that I wrote my response, and in fact, I wrote most of my response before I had heard her talk, because I've read her work over the years, and I understand where she's coming from, because I think that's where... I hope my students will be coming from, and I am too. So you will see that there are some resonances down to a clip that we both chose of peace. But I start with the fact that South Asia, which I study, has for decades, for decades in fact, going back more than 60 years, experienced some of the fiercest and most violent conflicts anywhere in the world in fact concentrated in small parts of South Asia, parts of India such as Kashmir and Sri Lanka, have had ongoing conflicts and militarization, the extent of which is barely seen even in countries like Syria today. So you might think that Syria is hugely militarized, but living life in India's Kashmir region is even more highly dangerous and militarized. So I just want to make four points arising from Clemencia's very, very elegant and eloquent work. I want to talk, first of all, about everyday life and how important that is. Because I think even in the most violent and militarized circumstances, as we've both experienced, everyday life goes on and therefore must be represented. But as journalists know, news time, airtime is very limited, and it's about the audiences, whether you have an audience which knows what you're talking about or an audience which doesn't. And it's very difficult in those places where people are not touched by war, in places that are not war zones, to make those experiences felt as strongly as the experience of a bomb going off. So it's much easier to show a bomb going off as a journalist than it is to go into someone's kitchen and show them making chapatis. But more than that, when peace has returned, the longer an injustice has continued, it has an afterlife in the community. And journalists tend to want to say, okay, that's done and dusted now. This is over. Let's move on to the next combat zone. And all of those people who need acknowledgement, who need their stories heard in order to stop feeling the way they feel about those years and years of conflict are left hanging in a peculiar kind of limbo. So I think it's very important that we think about telling those stories. And I think I heard that um, certainly before the lecture in the talk Clemencia and I had when she was talking about memory studies and history and making remarkable those stories of people who've survived through war. My second point again, is that history always matters. And this is a complicated thing. It's certainly a complicated thing when you've got a a one-and-a-half-minute segment on the national news or the international news to make your point. And what does it mean? Does it mean that when one of you is tweeting about something, you have to give a link to the latest big biopic or biography of the leader or that you have to give the historical thesis about this? I think definitely not. But what it does mean is that those of us who are writing about a situation or who consider ourselves knowledgeable enough to write about a situation, when we do it, if we are informed by a compassionate and overall history of a region, if we know where it originated and how it came to be, we tweet better. I know that sounds very odd, and I know that sounds as if somehow new media connections to history need to be rehearsed in advance, and that is exactly what I mean. Complexity and nuance is reflected in every piece of graffiti on a wall. If you've done the work, it's there. Third, and this I very much take away from Clemencia's work over the years, alongside the work of making alternative media, I think it's really important that we need to do the work of imagining alternatives. I think these are not unconnected things, but frequently in the rush to do something, to make something, to get something out. And I, I have worked with many young people who are in media collectives and the desperation to get out a magazine. For instance, I have friends who work with young people in Kabul making youth magazines. And they're willing to just do it about anything because they want to produce something and they want that collective sense of having made media together. But also we need to spend the time, all of us, together thinking about the kind of structures that we want the new, peaceful society to have. We need to think what we are willing to do in relation to economic redistribution in many of these places, and what kinds of politicians we want or want to be. So with this, I think, comes a very deep need for compassion, solidarity, and compromise. Things that toddlers are not necessarily very good at, but things that nation-states truly ought to be if we want to live together into a next century. So I think, at least on the left, and I'm on the left, and I spend a lot of time with quite left-wing people, we have lost our sense of how important that form of compromise is. Even on the left, it is far too quick and easy to shame people, to shame politicians, who have come out and over a long period of time tried to build peace. And what tends to happen is that we're quick to call them out at the first mistake, at the first hurdle. We're very fast to see corruption. We're very easy to say this person has failed. They've done exactly what their predecessor would do. And I'm going to say this again because this really matters in countries like India where actually weak perhaps even failing social democracy is somehow ceded to the strong fascist leaders, the ones who will go for military intervention, the ones who will crush the enemies of the nation. And this is something that is not just theoretical, it is happening today as we speak. And finally, fourth, but I think equally important, in order to have peace building community media at times of war. We have to start working, resisting, and embedding that kind of community media in times of peace. London is clearly not at war. But if we weren't doing that kind of work in European cities where there isn't a war, when it comes, and perhaps oddly, I have the strange feeling that we are entering a dangerous period in Europe at the moment, we won't be prepared. And I fear we will be exposed in a particular way, despite all our knowledge of the past. So Clemencia has reminded us so, so eloquently about performing peaceful solutions in the middle of a war. And I think if we haven't learned to perform those peaceful solutions in the middle of peacetime, we are really missing something. So we need to question the warmongering narratives of mainstream peacetime media. And some people, very, very few people are doing this And they often get shouted down because, for goodness sake, we're not at war. Why should we be questioning this? You know, not another wartime budget. You might ask how we can be prescient, and Clemencia has just shown us how we can be prescient. The last 50 years of history of the world, of the globe, of the global south, shows us enough wars to have taught us what brings those conflicts to fruition in the first place. And if I have time, Nick, do I have two minutes? Yes. I would like to end on a clip from a country which has really seriously experienced the devastation of war. So this is um, from Sri Lanka, from a citizen journalism website called Ground Views, and they have collated hundreds of citizens' versions of Pharrell Williams' Happy. A few years ago, not only would that not have been possible, but had someone put that out, I would have thought it was some kind of nightmare version of what was actually happening, which was little girls hanging from those trees, people being kidnapped from their homes, and plantations being blown up. This is not to say that Sri Lanka is a happy place now. There's plenty of reconciliation work still to be done. There are buried mines all over the place. There's work to be done. But they can still see their way to community building through projects such as this one. Thank you, Clemencia. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you very much. Thank you for a very eloquent response. And with your own media, which is unusual in responses, but it worked beautifully. Thank you very much. So we have about... Uh, twen- thir- 27 minutes, maybe around 30 minutes for uh, Q&A. I can see one immediately over there. There's the roving mic. Uh, yes, please. It's automatic. Okay.
3: Hello. Uh, you- ah, I was
0: Sorry, the mic's not on at the moment. We need to get it, actually. Uh... Could we ask them who they are? Yes. Uh, th- thank you. The question isn't that good, but uh, anyway. Um, uh, it was a very interesting talk. Uh, thank you very much. And I was just wondering, um, you talk about the relationship between the media and the, the government and, and the FARC rebels... <laughs> And, and the gangs. Um, to what extent could you just sort of describe that relationship as, as similar to the relationship between uh, Don Quixote and Sancho, in which uh, Don Quixote is kind of uh, the, uh, represents the the, the armed uh, struggle, and uh, uh, Sancho kind of represents the media in their kind of um, aphoristic uh, attempts to quantify the world. I'm going to take two or three. at oh, okay. more I'm com- there were more coming. We've got Ram over there and. Um, and the, la- the lady just behind the person who asked the question, but we go to Ram first. We'll take three together. And if you could just say who you are, sorry, just to give us a context.
4: My name is Ram. I'm a PhD.
0: Oh, <laughs> we're not having much luck with the mics tonight. Uh, OK, let's try this one first, and we'll come back to you, Ram. I'll see you this.
3: Hello, Linda
2: Mitchell at SOAS. Uh, I I loved the talk. Both both speakers was so inspiring. Um, I worked for three years in Sierra Leone, um, which is ravaged by civil war, precisely in peace building. And there were um, two problems we had working with community media. One was uh, financial sustainability. These these communities tend to be very, very poor. Uh, And secondly, particularly in the run-up to elections, uh, so many community media were overtaken by local big men. Uh, and it, it was, I'd be very interested to hear how in Colombia you're able to uh, to safeguard the, the sustainability and the independence of the community media. Okay,
3: okay,
0: thanks. And now hopefully we can bring in Ram if the mic is working. No? Can you
4: hear me? Yeah. You no, kind of good. My name is Ram. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Media and Communications. I'm also have been involved in community radio, both training and setting up in India for the last 10-12 years. Um, My question is about this entire model of peace building and media, I think highly effective, but I think depends to a large extent on how the community is positioned, as in somehow neutral kind of entity. Are they really neutral? To what extent? is the first. And second, even if they are not, or even if they are, regardless, how how can it be positioned? Because those who are armed refuse the entry of secular communication infrastructure thinking that, you know, the state will use it. And the state thinks everyone is a guerrilla, so they refuse to give licenses for community radio, And this has been the situation in India for the last 10 years. More than 10-15 Um, licenses have been rejected in conflict areas exactly because of this problem. Mm -hmm. So how do we see the community really is the question. Great question. Thank you very much. Yeah,
1: okay, so the relationship um, between the FARC and the media, um, okay, so that's a a very complex um, interaction and relationship. Um I would say that okay so mainstream media uh in Colombia suffer from the same um same problems as media in most of the world in terms of concentration and um <clears throat> um yeah privatization um in a few hands but despite that uh Colombia is the country of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who is known in, in Colombia as much as a journalist uh, than as a writer, as a novelist. And so we have a very, very strong tradition of autonomous journalism. And the the, the FARC guerrilla and all the other guerrilla groups and the paramilitaries and everyone have had to deal with uh, not everyone, but a significant mass of journalists who who relentlessly cover the the uh, abuses of power and the human rights violations on all counts. I mean, I mean, from all coming from everywhere, coming from the guerrilla, coming from the right-wing paramilitary, and coming from the army. I was in Mexico a couple years ago, and. Um, in uh, Veracruz, which is a very violent region. And, uh, one day, this, uh, taxi driver drove us to a salsa festival. And when he was driving, he was telling us, Oh, yeah, last night I was driving on this avenue and I ha- i was driving on pools of blood because 15 people were massacred here. And it was never reported, reported. This was in a big city, in, Vera- in a, the big city of Veracruz. And that made me realize that something like that could never happen in Colombia, even despite all the evils of the mainstream media, um, the, the journalists, um, information media maintain certain, to a certain extent, um, a degree of autonomy and, and independence. Um, So the, the peace building in Sierra Leone and sustainability and independence. Okay, so another excellent question. Very, very complex. I think Latin American community media and African community media tend to be very different, partly because there's much more funding in Africa than in Latin America for this type of media, meaning that... Many, I don't know, I mean, this is very speculative because I've never done research in Africa about community media, but what the impression I have is that many of the community media initiatives are started by NGOs and international funders or UNESCO, and then they're not grown organically from, from, the, from the community. And I think that is a major problem in terms of sustainability. Yes, community media in Colombia operate on a shoestring budget, and you never know when they're going to disappear. But the people who develop them are so committed that they will pay the electricity on the radio station before they eat and it's because the the community media initiative was born from the community it was not an external um, an external um, uh, agent that created it so you see all this creativity for example that community radio station that did the contest the um, what they are one of the ones that I'm that I've seen develop so many creative strategies so one of the just to mentioned one. They created um, radio serenades. So you pay the community radio station a nominal fee and you give them a playlist and they play that playlist for the person you're serenading and then the radio cycle with the mobile unit goes to the balcony to transmit the entire serenade. He turned on the light, he opened the window, he, you know. (laughs) And so there's uh, dozens of strategies like that. And what what they're always looking for is where are information or communication needs in the community and how can we use these technologies to address those information and communication needs and get a little bit of money, too. And so there's all kinds of strategies, but I think part of it is that they grow out out of the community. And in terms of um, uh, independence, yeah, okay, elections. So another big difference that, I mean, this is very drafty in my head, and I would have to do some real thinking and research about this, but one of the things that I think keeps coming back again and again for me in explaining how these things can happen in Colombia is that Colombia has a very old history of very, very strong social movements. And I'm talking about from the 1930s and 1920s, the labor movement. I mean, you have... Reading groups on Gramsci and Marx and Engels in the 1940s in rural Colombia, and so so it means that um, those agents, and I think this would explain that the respond to your question about the licenses too. These. Sectors, the unarmed but organized civil society, are, tend to be very strong. And they, they are a interlocutor, how do you say, interlocutor to the, yeah. to, the, to the state. So when these community media groups knock on the door of the state saying, "We demand radio frequencies and television frequencies," they have a strong voice and the government has to acknowledge them as a, a legitimate sector within the society, and it is known that uh, they are not the guerrilla, that they are different from the guerrilla. In some cases, the boundaries between the radicalized social movement and the guerrilla group blur, that, no, no question about it, but in many, many, many cases, it is clear to everyone that the um, organized civil society in the form of uh, social movements and civic organizations are strong and have been there forever. And so they have a legitimate voice, which is not the case in many other parts of the world quick point from Yes, I'll just come in
2: quickly um, to make a slightly more pessimistic point in response to both of your two questions about strong men because across South Asia that is very much the model of what has happened to television stations which supposedly belong to the community, to radio stations and even to internet now, internet broadcasting which supposedly belongs to the community and of course this affects people in a number of ways. One of the strongest and biggest alternative media outlets in Sri Lanka during the civil war from the Tamil Tigers was taken up by Western academics and lauded as being a wonderful thing. And yet the guys running it were absolutely steeped in hideous killing ideology. They were were encouraging encouraging sectarianism and um, hatred between communities. And Western academics saw them as a sort of free radio. So I think one of the ways in which to answer your question, we can Prevent these kinds of things from happening is by not jumping on particular narratives of liberation versus the state. And um, as as you asked, um, community is not always a safe and happy place. You know, the civilians are not always completely
1: unbiased, and I think we have to bear that in mind at all times.
0: Okay, well, let's take uh, three. Let
1: me just oh. say something <laughs> to complete because, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And what you said about history is such a key, because if you know the history, you know you can identify those uh, ideologies of the big men or not. But the other thing, just to because I realized I left something incomplete. Okay, the guerrilla have their own radio stations. And so they're, they're, this is not, um, they're not after these small radio stations. The, these are probably much smaller in terms of uh, coverage and uh, power of the, of the signal than the guerrilla radio stations. And the Army has its own radio stations, too. And so, you know, that's another key point. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's take three more questions. I had Richard, who's near a mic that I think will work, <laughs> and then Shim over there on the other side, and then, uh, I've forgotten your name from Colombia, I know that. <laughs> uh, that's what we three, and we'll see if we can get Richard. Hi, my name is Richard. I'm a PhD student at the Department of Media and Communications. My question in brief is, is really a media form of the post-conflict question of justice versus peace. So how, what are your thoughts on how media balance, on the one hand, not wanting to create antagonisms, not wanting to divide communities, but also perhaps having a responsibility to name perpetrators and demand justice? How, what are your thoughts on squaring that circle? Okay, uh, we've only got one working mic, so we'd better go to this one first and then come round to where she
2: is. Hello, I'm from Colombia, as Nick said. I'm Shaku's uh, student. Uh, I want to ask you a question regarding more like how do you sell, how do you communicate a post-conflict ideals or, or scenario in a national scope?
3: Understanding, well, two things. First, that regarding the, the the plebiscite we have in, in, in October-November, most of the people that voted no
2: are the people from the urban and, and the people from the cities that they don't suffer the conflict. How do you sell, how do you create a narrative of post-conflict in those people that they don't suffer this? And also understanding that our conflict has been very different throughout history, throughout our regions, and throughout generations, so they have affected differently people around Colombia. So it's more like, how do you create this post-conflict scenario in a national scope?
0: Okay, thanks. And we'll take one more question from Shim over there. If we can get the mic over there somehow. a mic that works.
3: Hi, um, I'm Shim. I'm I'm a global media student of both uh, Nick and Shaku. Um, And I guess my question leads to the previous. It's on coexistence. Um, I'm from South America, I'm from Guyana, and that's a place where there still is a lot of racial, interracial conflict. Um, And and it it happens all the time. Um, When we travel back, it's happening. When we leave, it's happening. But I want to understand how coexistence is universal. And here in London, there are still interrelational issues between cultures between people of same religions people of same faith practices so um yeah my question is on coexistence in relation to clemencia's quote and you know we learn to lower our voices and conversation is the threat in social fabric i want to know how far you believe this still happens in places like london uh, not just colombia or india but places where there are cosmopolitan environments how how is our conversation actually threatening our social fabric, and are we the cause of this negative impact? Okay.
0: Thank you very much. Come in.
1: Okay. So um, yeah, the the issue of justice um, versus peace is is key, and uh, it's right now it's at the centre of every discussion in Colombia. It was part of the referendum, and one of the main reasons that so many people voted no is because these. Um, also because there was a lot of misinformation out there. But so, in the, every case is different. If you, if you look at what happened in South Africa, there it was more like truth over justice, right? So as long as the perpetrators acknowledge what they did in front of the victims, that was kind of the goal and, of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Peru was a different case, Guatemala, each commission and each, each process is very different and actually is very interesting to what extent each nation decides collectively we want, we're, we want peace or we want truth or we want justice. In the case of Colombia, I think there's um, where, where I feel the country has agreed on is justice for the um, main leaders and uh, the ones who perpetrated heinous crimes. But that's very few people. I mean, the certain generals and um, uh, generals of the army and, you know, high-ranking officers of the army and the police... And then the leaders, uh, certain leaders of the guerrilla groups and certain leaders of the paramilitary groups, but then from then down, like the rank and file, I think there's a collective, um, this, uh, a collective um, uh, willingness to embrace those people and 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 reconcile and. Not forgive them or not forget, but to kind of move on. And there's the media in Colombia is full of, um, not right now, of NGOs and interventions and community projects that bring perpetrators and victims together and trying to mediate, and trying to move on, and trying to reconcile, and trying to... And it's all about communication, which is one of the interesting... It's all centered on communication processes. Um, so it's a kind of a... Combina- Colombia right now, I think, is in a combination of justice for the like worst perpetrators, but reconciliation among many, many, many of the victims and the perpetrators. And one of the interesting things is that the victims were some of the main defenders of the peace process because they don't want the next generation to have to go through what they went through. And so they were in Havana. They were involved in the peace process. They were always pushing the peace process along the, the victims. Um, So um, the um, post-conflict, tu nombre, Sebastián? Okay, Sebastián, question, key question. Um, I've been working with the Center for Historical Memory in Colombia, and I don't know, I imagine most of us are communication people here, but sometimes you want to shake political scientists and historians and sociologists and uh, I've been trying to shake the Historical Memory Commission into the media. You need to talk to the media about post-conflict. You need to engage the media. Um, and it's been impossible. Because, you know, it's first justice, uh, transparency, peace building, sociology, policy, and then last in the list, communication and media. is always last in the list. Um, and what I wanted was to bring to Colombia the s- beautiful communicators such as the producers of Valves with Bashir, the producers of The Wire, the producers of a beautiful series of television Argentinian called Televisión Identidad, about the babies that the grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo have recovered their identity. They made episodes about each of these young people who have recovered their identity. And this is mainstream film and television. And I'm a believer that, I mean, television in Colombia, the television series are famous for being good, but they always narrate war from the point of view of the perpetrator it's, you know, the main character is Pablo Escobar, the main character is the heads of the the paramilitaries, the main character is the head of the police intelligence, right? However, I just finished two amazing Colombian series that for the first time are narrating the conflict from the point of view of the victim. One is called La Niña, and it's it's a series, it's like I don't know, um, six months, and uh, it's the story of a young girl who was kidnapped by the guerrilla when, when she was eight, and then she's, she's captured by the army when she's 14, and that's where the series begins. And so she, the series finds her when she's 14, and she because she's a minor, she cannot be tri- tried, right? And so she's sent to a re- uh, rein, reinsertion program and uh, there she meets a kid who was part of the paramilitaries because his dad uh, pushed him or gave the kid to the paramilitaries because he was a sissy and so to kind of man him up they you know the, which uh, these are based on true stories and so these two kids at 14 15 16 Strike a love story, it's, you know, kind of a telenovela, but, but it's very well produced, and it tells the story of the of the country's war from the point of view of the victims, and so that that's a that's an amazing uh, that's how I would do it, like hundreds of these series, and the other one that I was very impressed with is called La Vendedora de Rosas, the Rose Seller, and again, it's the story of a little girl who sells flowers in one of those, precisely the same neighborhoods in Medellin that I was talking about. Beautifully produced and is this, the history of violence in these communities from the point of view of a of little girl. So we've gone from narratives where men with guns are the protagonists to stories both of them where young girls are the protagonists and that to me is a good, good sign.
0: Coexistence in London? Oh, and
1: the, yeah, okay, the coex yeah, so, like um, Shaco said, I think there's so much that any society can learn from societies like Sri Lanka and Colombia in terms of using communication and using Design interventions because I mean I don't think you can say well if people communicated better then we would Hmm. have more peaceful coexistence. I think those those strategies need to be designed and that's why it's so exciting that you have a master's in strategic communication because that's.
0: How right you are.
1: <laughs> yeah, because that's what... I mean, these strategies need to be designed by professional communicators. They're not going to spontaneously happen. You have to learn, uh, you know, read all of Lederach and Galtung and, and learn about Sri Lanka and about Colombia and how they did it there and take all that knowledge and design interventions for the neighborhoods here in London. I live in Philadelphia and the same thing. I mean, it's a very diverse city, but everything is so segregated. And so we all live in the same city, but that doesn't mean that we talk to each other or we know each other. But there has to be professionally designed interventions that bring people together to communicate in a way where they're not just looking at each other and seeing how different they are and how the other one is a threat, but actually rehumanize the other and find common ground with the other person. Anything? Yeah,
2: I have just two brief um, responses to all three questions. The first one is that actually there's a slogan which a lot of activists use they use it even on London streets and the slogan is no justice no peace and I'm sure you've heard it before Bart's putting his hand up <laughs> and actually what I think there's a complication in the justice peace equation which is that when you talk about justice i think you're talking about two different things there is justice which redresses the wrong which started the war in the first place if there was such a wrong so let's say land redistribution or stopping the you know the extermination of a particular community And then there is retributory justice, where the people who have perpetrated things, um, as in the Nuremberg trials, are then tried publicly or or whatever, you know, if you're a perpetrator, you're tried publicly and then you're punished. And in, in a place like Sri Lanka, where there's a tinderbox, it could all start back up again, we have both problems still simmering. So, in a way, I I can't give you a, you a proper answer to that, but at the moment, peace is being guaranteed almost just by force and by people's absolute hatred of the thought of going back into a war, but justice has not happened. So, injustice is still being perpetrated, and the perpetrators of injustice have not been punished. Some of them have been wiped out, others are the victors. So, these situations are very, very complicated, and it's still... You know, there. And I think the point about making media is also a point that many community media practitioners in Sri Lanka have made that you have to make fiction media to tell stories about communities coming together. And Shiromi, in answer to your question, um, I wouldn't go all the way to the media theories and the, the political theories. I would just say, think about neighborhood schools. Think about the ways in which, you know, you have to a teacher has to settle an incident of bullying between two people. I think a lot more effort from adults has to be put into thinking about how children's education in all of these places is done. I mean, whether it's about saying, you know, this boy is a sissy and trying to retell those narratives, redraw narratives of masculinity and femininity from the age of 5 upwards, or whether it's about giving you an accurate picture of history, and it's it's no surprise that one of the first things that the right-wing fascist government in India is doing is to rewrite textbooks to tell a history in a particular way. So I think, you know, we need to think about schools as places where huge interventions can take place. It doesn't have to be at the level of the United Nations.
0: Well, thank you. Um, (laughs) Great ending there. Sadly, we've come to the end of our time. I feel we could go on for hours unpacking these wonderful thoughts. But do please join us for drinks outside where you have a chance to meet Clemencia and Shaku. I've been asked to say, please could you lead by that door over there? I don't know the reason, but it's very important, I've been told. And please, let's thank Shaku for a great response and Clemencia for a wonderful talk.